So I'm looking there. Yeah? I'm not supposed to look at all these people. You don't want me looking at all these people? I kind of want to look at them because they're here. And I love that. Uh, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we were just saying about how we've seen you move the mountains and how you made a way when there was no way. And, and I have never felt like that quite like I do right now. God, there have been, there have been a lot of mountains. But you have, you have made a way. And we're here in this place. And we just praise you. We just praise you, Jesus. And thank you so, so much. And Lord, I pray now that in this time that you would speak, that you'd speak through me. And, and God, that, that you would just um, begin to do an incredible work in us, in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know you're not here, uh, at least not most of you. I invited our, our leadership team and our staff to be here uh, this morning. So, so, you know, in the future, if someone asks you to be on the leadership team, now you know there's a benefit here. Whenever we open a new building, you get in one week earlier, like sneak peek. So like major benefits to being part of our leadership team. I, I know that you're not here, and, and so in one sense today isn't, isn't really that different for the last 70 Sundays. We've sent out a link, you've clicked on it, you've joined the live stream from your home, from, uh, from a park, from your car. It didn't really matter to you whether we were live streaming from Capilano University or KME Center or the beach or whatever. It didn't really matter, right? Because you were where you were and we were where we were. But, but in one sense, this morning is very different because as you well know by now, this is our first Sunday uh, holding a service, a Sunday service, from our new church home. And I, I know that some of you, like we mentioned before, some of you might not feel comfortable joining together with people in this way yet. That's okay. And I know some of you who have become part of us don't live here. And so we're going to continue to live stream for the foreseeable future so you can continue to be part of what's going on. But I just want to say to you, this is your new home. <laughs> and next week, I, I get to say, actually, welcome in, welcome here, and I've been waiting so long to say those words, welcome to your new church home. And I, a word about the timing on all of this. Um, you know that I have been eager and frustrated with the many, many delays to get to this point. I've only mentioned that about 30-odd times or so recently. But I look at the timing and I think if, if we'd gotten our occupancy permit four months ago, we couldn't have really done much with this building anyways. And if we had gotten our occupancy permit two months ago, we could have had services, but we would have had rules like no singing, no talking to each other, no getting close to each other. It would have been, let's be honest, a little bit of a downer to open up a new building and saying, hey, sit there and be a passive observer and don't do a thing. Whereas, we got our occupancy permit this past Monday, one day before the BC announced step three of its restart plan, which to my total shock, 
I had heard rumors of it. I didn't believe it. So my total shock entailed the removal of capacity limits and restrictions for religious services, which means that when you come, if you are able to come next week, you don't have to pre-register. You don't have to, you don't have to stay apart. You can talk to each other. You can sing. Uh, we're going to say that, that masks are recommended, but, but not mandatory. So there is that. But, but we're going to come in, and it's not going to be subdued. I mean, I always thought it was going to be. I anticipated that. It was going to be a quiet, subdued entry. It, it, can be, it can be celebratory. We're going to praise God together. And so I, I just, you know, sometimes we think that we know how things should happen. Maybe better than God. We go, what are you taking so long for, Lord? I would do a lot better job of putting the pieces together. Ah, maybe not. <laughs> Because as it turns out, you look and you, you can see what God was up to. And you, you start to realize maybe he does know better than me. And that gets to a little bit of what Nate talked about last week. He talked about a pace of life. A Jesus-led pace of life. Following God's timing, his rhythm of work and rest, of, of Sabbath. And that is actually related to an image that I've had in my mind for the last month or so as I've thought about this moment of our first service in the building. I've had this, this image in my mind. And it's from the world of agriculture. And some of you might think, well, that makes sense. Since you're Manitoban, you know, that's all you have there. All you have is fields and farms. And that's true, actually. We're in the area where I grew up, it was completely flat. There were, there was, there were, there were three man-made hills in the nearby metropolis of Steinbach. 10,000 people. There were three man-made hills. They were so prominent and such a source of fun that we had named, there were names for them, like Abe's Hill, which I think you're looking at on, uh, on your screen. It's that little bump to the right. You may not notice it. That's Abe's Hill. Big, yeah, we don't have it here. Uh, big deal. Uh, in Winnipeg, we would go skiing on uh, Spring Hill, which I thought was an epic mountain, like Whistler. Uh, as it turns out, I drove, I was driving there a couple years ago. It's a, it's a slight raise on the ground leading to a slight dip below. So that's, but there's a chairlift, so it's a big deal. Uh, so, so that's where I grew up. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. Thing is, I don't know a thing about farming. <laughs> My extent, the extent of my knowledge, is that canola fields are yellow. That's what I can pass on to my kids. So what I know about agriculture actually comes more from the Bible than from where I'm from, and and along with some other things I have read. So uh, let's read. Uh, We're in Leviticus chapter 25 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open them up, including all of you here, open them up. I'm watching you for the last year and a half. I couldn't tell if you were doing it. I could see all of you. Leviticus 25. I love this, guys. I just, this is so good. I just love it. Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 7 is, is where we're at. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. 
The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary residents who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So here is this, this idea of letting fields, letting uh, letting crops or let, letting letting farmland lie fallow for for a year. Now let me just explain this a little bit. In in the context, the Israelites are between the Exodus in Egypt and entering into the Promised Land, and these are commands given by God through Moses that kind of anticipate what life is going to be like for them in the Promised Land. And I think this command would have come as a surprise to them, and maybe it is a surprise to us as well. Because what we're familiar with is human beings taking a Sabbath. That, that's from Genesis 1 and 2. In one sense, God creates for six days, rests the seventh. If we are to be like God, then we imitate Him by taking a day of rest. It was so important, it made it into the Ten Commandments. Talk ten Rules for life, according to God, one of them is taking Sabbath. So we kind of get that, but here God says the same thing is to be true of the land itself. You work it, you take care of it for six years, but every seventh year you rest, you leave it alone. You can eat what the land produces, but you don't do anything to it. You don't weed it, you don't water it, anything like that. You just leave it alone. So that was, uh, that, that was the instruction. Now I want to pull out four things from this and talk about some of the implications of it. Here's the first. And it comes from the language here about the land itself observing a Sabbath to the Lord. It's the orientation, the relationship is the land to the Lord. The land is to observe a Sabbath to the Lord. See, one of the things that the Israelites recognized in setting aside one year out of seven was that actually the land itself belonged to the Lord. It was actually His. It wasn't theirs, it was His. And this is true, by the way, of the regular human Sabbath, that you set aside one day a week to remind yourself what's true the other six days as well. That, that actually all your time, all your days belong to the Lord. The same thing with tithing. It's giving of part of your finances to the work of the Lord. Some people think, well, I give 10% or 5 or 2 or 20, whatever it is. I give a percentage of it to the Lord for, what, for Him to do what He wants to do with it. And then the rest of it is for me to do as I want with it. But that's actually misunderstanding the biblical framework. You give part of your finances as a reminder that actually all of it belongs to the Lord and He can, he can direct you and do with it as He sees fit. And so the land is set aside one year out of seven years as a reminder that even the other six years, this is from God. The Israelites are going to be caretakers of it. They're going to be stewards of the land, but it doesn't belong to them. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. 
In Psalm 50, we have God saying, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. God's claiming the mosquitoes. Even the mosquitoes are his. Which reminds me, well, it reminds me of bad memories from Manitoba is what it reminds me of. Uh, But it reminds me of what the the Dutch writer Abraham Kuyper famously said. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every square inch, he says, mine. And this gets, by the way, just biblically speaking, at the exile as well. God told the Israelites, if you follow me, if you're faithful, then I'll bless you and I'll bless the land. But if you don't, if you're not faithful, then I'll take the land away from you. And that's what happened. The Israelites followed after other gods. And, and God allowed the land to be taken from them, first by the Assyrian Empire, then by the Babylonian Empire. And interestingly, in 2 Chronicles 36, talking about, about how the, the land was taken away from, from Israel, we read that the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Sometimes the land doesn't just need a year of rest, sometimes it needs 70 years, because it is well overdue for something like that. Now, I think this is an important principle for us, kind of across the board, that everything we have actually is not ours. No matter what the legal deed says, no matter what the courts say, it belongs to God, and we are caretakers and stewards of what He has given us. And, and it matters what we do with it because of our relationship with Him. See, sometimes people who take care of things that are not their own treat it badly. They don't care. I've heard, I've heard horror stories about bad tenants uh, who, who trash the, the home that they're living in, who refuse to give payment, who threaten violence on their landlords, who use their homes as a, as a place to, to conduct criminal activities. I mean, those, those are tenants who don't own what they have, and so they go, well, I can do whatever I want with it. But it changes when you have a certain relationship with the, the owner. So the last place that we rented in Vancouver before moving to the North Shore, we, we, were, never, we were never really bad tenants. But this situation, we were never like, yeah, we weren't like that. But this situation kind of raised it a notch because we knew the people that we were living with. They were the owners. They lived upstairs. We were downstairs. We knew them. In fact, after a year or two, they became some of our closest friends. And so living in that home really felt more like a partnership you know, we, we didn't have any financial stake in it, but we really wanted to take care of it, partly because it was our home, but also to honor our, our landlords who were also close friends of ours. How much more so if God, our Creator, our Savior, the one who loves us so much that He gave Jesus to die in our place, who is our rock and our refuge, if He entrusts us with things, how much more important is it that we treat it well, that we are responsible stewards and caretakers with that? And I think about that in terms of this 
place right here, this, this land, this building. I mean, legally it's ours. And we put a lot of money into it for like decades people have been giving towards this. We have put a, a lot of time into building this. We have invested sweat, blood, and tears in this. I know that for the last couple of weeks, I have actually shed blood and sweat for this. And I was going to say, but not tears, but this morning that definitely changed. There were a lot of, so I've, I've invested all of that, blood, sweat, and tears in this thing. So I know we put it in, to this, but it's not ours. It's a gift entrusted to us by God. And it's incredibly important how we, uh, what we do with it, how we treat this. See, I want, I want to talk briefly, not, not, to, uh, not to degrade, uh, not to degrade a, a church that came before us, but the church that used this land immediately before us was a church that, as far as I can tell and as, uh, what I've read and what I've heard, cared a lot about fitting into the community about being a, a welcoming, non-obtrusive presence. And there's a lot about that that's really good. But they took it to such an extreme that they actually denied some pretty central elements, I would say, of Christian faith, and in fact even covered up the cross that was in the building so that people wouldn't be offended by it. Now, from a secular social point of view, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, just do what you can to please people. However, that church died, and the land came up for sale, and we were able to purchase it. But you see, we have to avoid making the same mistake. Our job is not to be pleasing to the world around us. Our job is to be faithful to God. He's the one that we're accountable to. He's the one that we're responsible to. This, this land, this building is a gift from Him, and so our number one job is to glorify Him with what we do here, with how we serve from here, not to be, not to be totally acceptable to those around us, because it is His. Now that gets to the second kind of point I want to bring up, and, and this one we're going to spend a lot less time on, which is that, that the land, creation itself, matters. Did you catch that in Leviticus 25? In verse 7, God says you do this as well for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Not even just the livestock who directly benefit humans, but wild animals. You do it to benefit them too. Which shouldn't really surprise us. If, if we read Genesis 1 and 2, we would see that God actually created quite a bit of stuff before humans, like most of it. And he says that it's good. He takes, he takes joy in it. He thinks, actually, what I've made, I really, I really like this. So humans, even though humans are the crowning achievement of God's creation, and even though humans are God's image bearers in a unique way, humans are not the point. The point is the glory of God, which is manifested in us, but also in all of creation. Which just really briefly gets me to one of the fav- my favorite things to talk about, which is our eternal home, our eternal destiny, which is not up above the clouds in some non-physical place, but instead a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed creation where we have resurrected bodies, where this creation is devoid of sin and death. This is our hope. 
Romans 8 says that all of creation is held in bondage just like we are to sin. Creation is held in bondage to death and decay. But when we are liberated, creation gets liberated as well. Creation enters into this new existence as well. Creation matters. Which is why it matters that this building and this land is not simply a tool for us to use, but actually matters in and of itself as an expression of the glory and the character of God. It's why it matters that tradespeople spent the last two years working to the best of their ability to create this home for us, this, this beautiful, welcoming, warm home. It's why it matters that landscapers and consultants try to figure out which plants to, to plant and how to best preserve the natural elements of this property. It's why it matters that we as a church invest in, in composting and recycling and being efficient with our energy because creation itself matters. It's part of what it means to be responsible caretakers of this place. Third point I want to take from this is, isn't directly from Leviticus 25, but it's the idea that fallowness is all about fruitfulness. Now that's not the reason that's given in Leviticus 25. The reason is to honor the Lord. But farmers have discovered that actually following a practice like this leads to increased fruitfulness in the crops. And it's kind of counterintuitive, right? You kind of think, I've got to squeeze every ounce of productivity from this land. I'm, I, you know, I don't want to waste a year of crops, of profit. I've got to use it for all it's worth. It's the same reason a lot of people won't take a day of rest. Because they feel like, well, to, to take a day of rest means I lose a day of productivity. I lose wages. I've I got to work every day. I can't, I can't take a day of rest. I can't afford that. They think wrong. Because when you practice Sabbath, it actually increases uh, how fruitful and useful you are the other six days. Now, I could reference statistics and studies and all those. Sometimes I do that. I'm going to go pop culture on this one. Carolyn and I are watching a, a TV show, a comedy about municipal government, which sounds like the most boring thing in the world, unless you know which show we're talking about. So the protagonist of the show is this incredibly driven woman who loves her work, who has like a million ideas to make her city a better place to live. Her boss, who's the head of this government department, is a libertarian who thinks that the government probably shouldn't exist. It's pure comedy gold. I love it so much. Uh, so anyways, in one episode, they've just had this really successful event. And the, the protagonist feels so much pressure to come up with another great idea right away. And she drags the whole team on a camping trip, which goes badly because, you know, it's a camping trip. In my experience, they basically all go that way. And goes so badly that they all go to a bed and breakfast filled with cats, which actually I think is worse than a camping trip. So while they're there, the boss locks the protagonist in a room without a computer, without any paper, just goes, you need to sleep. She's like, we're not going to sleep till we come up with an idea. He goes, you're going to sleep. And she wakes up the next morning after fighting it for quite a while on a rare full night of rest, and she's got so many great ideas because rest leads to fruitfulness. And it's the same thing with land. 
that, that it has been realized now that when you let a, a, a field lie fallow, it restores the balance of nutrients in the soil, it boosts the microorganisms, it increases the moisture holding capacity of the soil, all of these things that lead to more, more crops, more harvest in the years to come. It turns out maybe God actually knew something about agriculture that humans didn't figure out for many, many years later, because it seems like this was a bit of a novel idea at the time. So uh, there is, there's, there's, there's a passage in the New Testament that is similar, but makes the point more directly. It's in John 15, verses 1 to 2. Jesus says there, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. See, there was a common image in the Old Testament of Israel being the vine. And here Jesus says he is the true vine. If you are part of him, if you're connected to him by faith, then you are part of true Israel. But here's the thing about being part of the vine. That there's pruning. And that can be painful. That can, can involve sacrifice. But the reason pruning needs to happen is because the goal is not for the vine to get as big as possible. The goal is for the vine to be as fruitful as possible. And this is something that, that churches, and maybe especially megachurches, need to be aware of that maybe water down the, the, the message so that more people will come. The point isn't to make the vine as big and ranging as possible. The point is to make it as fruitful as possible. N.T. writes in his commentary on this passage, he compares this to what he knows about, about uh, rose bushes. Here's what he says. He says, A rose bush left to itself will get straggly and tangled and grow in on itself. It will produce quite a lot of not-so-good roses rather than a smaller number of splendid ones. It will, quite literally, get in its own light. It needs help to grow in the right directions and to the right ends. So you prune it to stop it wasting its energy and being unproductive. You cut out, particularly, the parts of the plant that are growing inwards and getting tangled up. You encourage the shoots that are growing outwards toward the light. You prune the rose, in other words, to help it be, help it be its true self. And I would clarify that and just say to help it be what God intends it, wants it to be. But I love that image, and I think it's so relevant to what we're talking about, that, that God prunes the vine, prunes the roses, uh, so that what remains grows outward and, and bears much fruit. Now, in the context of Jesus calling his disciples in John, their obedience to his calling did involve pruning. Think about it. They, they left their, their businesses. They left their families. They left their status and their comfort. They left all of that behind. They, they died to stuff in, in that sense. 
There were others who were, who were called to follow, but they weren't willing to be pruned. They weren't willing to lay stuff down, and so they were effectively cut off from the vine. But for those who were willing to be pruned, they in the end were used by Jesus to tell the world and to bear much fruit in terms of faith in him. And so I think about this in terms of this land, actually, this property. For about 70 years, a building stood here that, for the most part, proclaimed the gospel, gathered people together in the name of Jesus. But two years ago, there was a serious pruning. There was a fallowing of this ground because that building was torn down. And for the last two years, this land has not been used to actively proclaim the gospel or to bring people together in the name of Jesus. There has been a following. But we did that with the idea of increased fruitfulness in this place. We built this facility, which we believe, we prayerfully anticipate, will be used for an even greater impact for the gospel than what existed before. It's a following, it's a pulling back for an increase in fruitfulness in the years ahead. I think about that in terms of COVID and this whole season of life for our church. COVID has been a kind of a a pruning, a following, where a lot of the stuff that we did as a church stopped. For the last year and a half. I remember commenting to someone early on that my, my job had just become so much simpler. It was about praying with people, teaching the Bible, meeting together with people, and that was about it. That was what I was doing because we were running all these programs and ministries. And, and actually, that was, that was kind of nice. And it gave us the space as a church to ask, what is God actually calling us to do? For example, our leadership team met with our executive minister, our, our Baptist Pope, essentially, and, uh, and walked through a whole visioning process. And the great thing about having a vision statement, which if you don't know, ours is, we live to know Jesus Christ personally, and... There we go. Did you hear that? There were like ten people who knew it. Uh, that's our vision. And the great thing about that is that you can measure everything else against that. You can say, does this help us work towards this vision? Does it help us accomplish what God is calling us to? Uh, building a new facility and starting from scratch, it really is, has been helpful too. At our uh, last board retreat, our leadership retreat, I was so grateful for a consensus among our leaders that we don't want to just fill this building with anything and everything and rent it out to everyone who asks. We want to be intentional and thoughtful about how this building is used to enable people to know Jesus and to make him known. And so this this COVID season has allowed us space to ask these questions and evaluate these kinds of things. And I think about it in terms of my discipleship and, and your discipleship, that that there are seasons of pruning, of of fallowing. And those aren't fun sometimes. It's it's not fun when you feel like there's a certain barrenness in your life, when things are being taken away, stripped away, things are getting uncomfortable, you don't feel God's presence real close, you don't know what he's up to. That's not a lot of fun. But one of the reasons that God might allow us to experience that is because it's a season of 
pruning, of stripping away pride and self-sufficiency. It's a season of fallowing, of letting things lie for a period of time to prepare for increased fruitfulness. Whether the image is pruning a vine or letting a field lie fallow, the point is the same, to prepare for increased fruitfulness. And the fourth and final point, and this one again will be a lot briefer, is that this pruning and fallowing season is meant to be temporary. See, some people are workaholics, and they don't know how to take a day of rest. It's just work, 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 work. That's it, that's all they know. But there are also people who just don't really want to do any hard work. And they're like, oh, I need my Sabbath. You've been taking Sabbath for 30 years. It's time to work. The Sabbath is, is temporary. The, the Sabbath year, the following, is temporary. It is meant to allow us to rest and, and be restored so that we can get back to work. And, and, and so for some of us, this past season, and, and thinking especially in terms of church life, has been that kind of season where we didn't, there were a lot of, a lot of gifts that, that we didn't make use of in the last year and a half. There were, there were, there were a lot of people who, who didn't really need to do a whole lot. Our worship team did a lot, and our tech people did a whole lot, but, but there were some who didn't need to do that much. And, and, and that was good for a season. But seasons change, and part of wisdom is discerning these kinds of seasons. And I really believe that we are moving out of a season of fallowness, and we are moving into a season of planting seeds and watering seeds and, and, and pulling weeds and, and ultimately harvesting. And this is really exciting, but we're going to need we're going to need people. We're going to need people who can contribute their gift and their time towards the harvest. And so I'm praying the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 9, or what he told us to pray. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It may be that you, you are still somebody who needs to take a Sabbath year. I'm not discounting that. And even as we, we come back to the, to the fields and work the, the field, spiritually speaking, we still need to practice Sabbath. That's what Nate talked about last week. We need to make sure that we are resting, we're being nourished, we're being fed. But I really believe the time of fallow land has, has come and it is now passing. And we are grateful for that season. We are grateful for what God did in and through that. But our prayer is that now as we enter into this new season, there will be increased fruitfulness. There will be a harvest. Amen? Let's get to, let's get to planting. Let's get to, to watering. Let's get to harvesting. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this morning. I'm so, so thankful, Lord for what you have done in and through us in this past season. It wasn't always fun, and I fought against it, and sometimes I doubted and I questioned your purposes. I confess that, Lord, and I, I say I'm sorry. I should never, ever have questioned your wisdom. 
God, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for this season. But we thank you, Lord, that it, it seems as though we're coming out of that into a new season. And so, Lord, we do pray for workers for the harvest. We pray for renewed vision and renewed energy. And we pray, Lord, that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come in and through us. In your name, Jesus, amen.